I'd like to start this week by talking about one of my favorite artists of all time, the composer of so many of my favorite musicals, the great Stephen Sondheim, a composer and lyricist who wrote so many of the most iconic musicals in Broadway history. Anybody who knows me knows how much I talk about Sondheim. My first ever play was Into the Woods Jr., which is just half of the original musical Into the Woods, where, <laughs> where none of the bad stuff in the second act happens. And since I was 11 years old and in that very first play, I've devoured his work from West Side Story to Sweeney Todd, from Sunday in the Park with George to Company. He is a legend and the sort of figure whose name carries a lot of weight with it, especially in the theatrical community. He was so prolific that some of his musicals don't even get the recognition that I think that they deserve. And one of them is a musical that we're talking about today. It inspired the creation of this episode, something I've always wanted to write about on this show. That musical is called Assassins. Assassins is not your typical musical. It doesn't necessarily follow a plot or a structure or a character from beginning to end. It's more of a collection of songs and scenes that flow in and out of history, in and out of themselves, weaving a tapestry of a certain type of person. That's because this musical's cast of characters is made up of successful and attempted assassins of U.S. presidents. These are men and women who tried to change the fabric of American history by assassinating whichever president was in office at the time of their song, at the time of their scene, that the real people get turned into fictionalized versions of themselves. In some ways, they get to tell their own stories. We meet Squeaky Fromm, a devoted follower of Charlie Manson, who attempted to assassinate Gerald Ford in 1975. We also meet John Hinckley Jr., the man who attempted to assassinate Ronald Reagan in 1981. We also meet the successful assassins, of which there are four. Charles Gateau was the man who assassinated President James Garfield in 1881, though Garfield didn't die until two months later from infections related to the gunshot wound. We also hear from Leon Cholgosh, the man who assassinated President William McKinley at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York in 1901. If you are a fan of this musical, the songs are probably drifting into your mind right now. Sondheim masterfully weaves these incredibly dense and occasionally macabre historical facts into catchy Broadway tunes that linger in your mind. And ever since my college roommate Tyler first played this musical for me back in 2014, the songs, their facts, their stories, the people in them have always lingered in my mind. I actually know more about these events because of this musical. It, it, it really got my curiosity in American history back in those days. What works so well about this show is that the assassins tell their own stories, but we are asked to think of them both as people, uh, as historical figures, and to be critical of their actions, of course, how could you not be? But it asks you to examine them and, and, and what their reasoning is. It's complicated and intense and very, very interesting. And it's made even more interesting because there is an omnipotent narrator who sings a few songs. That narrator is called The Balladeer. He laments about the lives of Charles Gateau and Leon Cholgosh, and even shares a long duet with the man who assassinated Abraham Lincoln, John Wilkes Booth. The duet is appropriately damning, mocking John Wilkes Booth for his actions, his motives, his legacy. It's a sharp musical that doesn't pull its punches when speaking of historic figures, and the ballads about the successful assassinations seem to hit the hardest. But one song is always stuck in my mind, a volatile, intense song, a funny song, in fact, that is one of the first songs. It introduces a character and an event in American history I'd not heard of before this musical. It's about the attempted assassination of one of the most important presidents in American history, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. 
90 years ago this week, on February 15, 1933, a naturalized citizen, an Italian immigrant by the name of Giuseppe Zangara, attempted to assassinate FDR in Miami, Florida. In the musical Assassins, the song is partially sung by a chorus of onlookers, noting how they had a part in stopping the assassination of FDR, with Giuseppe interrupting to espouse his reasoning and even yell at the audience for laughing at the musical. We'll talk more about that later as we dive deeper into this moment in history, but for now, let's hear from the cast of the original Broadway production of Assassins as they sing the third song in the piece, How I Saved Roosevelt. That's why he was standing back so far. That's why when he aimed, he missed the car. Just looking, I was there. Or we'd have been left bereft of FDR. I've known this song for years, been fascinated by the details that it goes into, of all the people who seemingly had an impact, and I've always noted how the song focuses on Zangara's lack of motive. He didn't seem to care who he hurt as long as someone was hurt. To my surprise, the song is startlingly historically accurate. The things I learned in it, I found to be more true than I was expecting as I dove deeper into the story. What's more amazing, actually, is how true the story is. It's even more fascinating than the way it was told in song. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the attempted assassination of FDR, how Roosevelt and the man who tried to kill him wound up in Miami on that fateful day, and how one random bystander may have changed the course of world history. Before we go any further, I want to give you a content warning. We will not be diving deeply into it, but this episode will be briefly discussing a situation of severe gun violence in a crowd where one person was killed back in 1933. I will keep the details of the violence brief, but at a time like the present when gun violence is all too common in America, especially in crowded public places like in this story, this event back in 1933 feels a little too familiar. It is important to warn you before we go any further because I do not want you to be uncomfortable by the story we're talking about today. If you aren't comfortable, but you still want to hear the story, I will give you a warning before we discuss the actual violence against the one fatal victim of the violence, but this may not be the episode for you. If you're ready to talk about it more in depth, let's get into it and let's meet my guest this week. His name is Dr. David Woolner. Yes, I'm David Woolner. I'm a professor of history at Marist College and senior fellow of the Roosevelt Institute, as well as the uh, resident historian of the Roosevelt Institute in Hyde Park, New York. How did you get specifically into the field of, of writing about Roosevelt and studying his history specifically? Uh, well, I've always was interested in, uh, in history. I was particularly interested in uh, transatlantic relations, Anglo-American relationship, and started studying that in, in graduate school. I did my graduate school work at McGill University in Montreal. And, you know, one thing led to another. I got into the 1930s and 40s, the Great Depression, World War II, and the complexity of world's problems back then, um, the more I was drawn to uh, the leadership of Franklin Roosevelt, which was quite extraordinary, as you know, through those years. 
It is pretty thrilling, I must admit, to get to speak to an expert from the Roosevelt Institute, especially someone as capable to speak on FDR as Dr. Wolner. He, he wrote a book about it. We'll talk about that during the credits. If you hear rain in the background, by the way, of this interview, <laughs> it was, and actually, you know what? If you hear rain in the background of, of this recording as well, it was a surprisingly rainy day during the interview, and it's a surprisingly rainy evening as I record this part of the episode as well. Apparently, the rain has to fall whenever I'm making this episode. It, it's a little bit of ambiance for you. But without further ado, let, let's dive deeper into FDR with Dr. Wolner. Let's talk about FDR's path to becoming the president in 1933, because it was not an easy road. He, um, you know, he, he had come down with uh, polio uh, in the early 1920s, and he was desperately trying to find a way to restore his health and had discovered this uh, warm springs that he read about in Georgia in this ramshackle rundown old resort in rural Georgia, um, read about a boy of 16 who seemed to regain the use of his legs by taking the waters there, and uh, went down there in the 20s and really loved it, ended up buying the place and turning it into a kind of rehabilitative center for uh, the victims of uh, polio. The polio came in 1921, when he was not yet 40. He was born in Hyde Park, New York in 1882 and served in politics throughout his adult life, both in the New York State Senate but also in the Navy under President Woodrow Wilson in World War I. He had made a move toward the White House in 1920 when he ran as a vice presidential candidate with Democrat James Cox, but they lost to Warren G. Harding, the Republican. Soon after this is when he was stricken by polio. He soon lost the use of his legs, permanently. As mentioned by Dr. Wolner, FDR created a rehab center for himself and others afflicted by polio. It is now a historic location in Georgia, the Warm Springs Historic District, and it brought FDR some relief as polio's impacts became more permanent on his life. We should pay to visit sometime for the show, but FDR wasn't meant to spend the rest of his life at the spring. Opportunity was knocking. And in 1928, when Al Smith was running for the presidency, he wanted Franklin Roosevelt to run for the governorship in New York because he thought he would be a strong candidate and would help Smith carry the state. Roosevelt was reluctant to do that, but uh, his wife and Herbert Lehman and others put pressure on him, and he finally agreed, and he was successful. It was propitious because 1928, you know, we got the Depression in 1929, so Roosevelt was governor in those early years of the Depression. and. Um, and got a lot of experience on many of the programs that he would put together federally, uh, and then decided to run for president in 1932. He was a, you know, it was a very famous name thanks to Theodore Roosevelt. Of course. And he had already established a kind of political standing in his own right, so he decided to run. So when he was running for president in 1932, what sort of platform was he running on? I mean, obviously, the sort of things that we talk about with parties and, and party names and stuff, obviously their policies have changed a lot in the last 90 years since he ran for president. But can you talk about the, the, sort, of like the sort of values he had when he was trying to step into the presidency in 1932? I think people would be surprised. Um, you know, that generation, his generation, actually, uh, you know, he was raised on a kind of economic orthodoxy, what we call it. We're, we're not talking about a Keynesian economic policy here. We're talking about a guy who thought that during times of trouble, you needed to cut federal spending, uh, reduce the size of government. Um, he was trying to, he talked about lowering taxes and so forth. But he also was, you know, the, the, uh, related to Theodore Roosevelt, the great progressive Republican, uh, and had a lot of progressive values, and, and I think fundamentally believed that government had a responsibility to try to alleviate uh, suffering uh, of the American people. And, and 
And um, so it, uh, he approached the office with a very open mind. I think that's what, what, what's sometimes confusing about Roosevelt. He, he said famously during that campaign, you know, if I, if I read the tenor of the nation correctly, and of course this would be now during the Depression, I, I think what people want is bold, persistent experimentation. Uh, you know, try something. If it doesn't work, throw it out and try something else. But for God's sake, do something. And, and actually, the line that got the biggest applause in his first inaugural address was, this nation is calling for action and action now. So he wasn't really wed to any ideology. I mean, people think of him as a left-wing politician, but actually he, he was fairly conservative, uh, especially on the fiscal side. But he was also, you know, very much a believer in the idea that government had this responsibility and he was very open to ideas. So uh, that combination, you know, ultimately led to the, the 100 days in the New Deal. This speaks to the complex nature of what makes FDR a distinct figure in American political history. His politics, especially with the New Deal, are focused on federal aid, which has been called a socialist policy by some in the time since. The New Deal was using taxes and using federal aid to help people during the Great Depression. But as FDR said, quote, the country demands bold, persistent experimentation, end quote. No matter where his personal politics lied, FDR was elected president in 1932 in uncertain, complicated times, and that required complicated solutions, ones that didn't fit neatly into any one political persuasion. FDR wanted to help the country. He wanted to use his power and his his position as president to have an impact, and it didn't really matter what his personal politics were or, or what these politics could be labeled now. People needed help, and that's what he was focused on. He was facing a massive problem and tackled it headfirst when he was elected president. And he was lucky that people had a lot of animosity toward the previous president, Herbert Hoover. We've talked about him on the show before. We've discussed sort of his most infamous moment. Herbert Hoover was not a popular president, to put it mildly. Dr. Wolner expands on why Hoover's legacy was already muddled when he left office. Uh, the, the Depression, of course, had, had, you know, really was reaching rock bottom. Uh, the resentment was against Hoover. Um, people felt that Hoover was just not doing enough to try to alleviate the crisis. Um, and Roosevelt won that election, um, you know, fairly handily. Uh, there's the famous case of the bonus members have gone to Washington to, to ask for their World War I pensions to be delivered to them early. Right. Uh, wanted Congress to do that, wanted Hoover to do that. They refused. Hoover eventually sent in the army to clear them out. That was, you know, the newspaper clippings and, and photographs and newsreels of the U.S. Army driving World War One veterans out of Washington using, you know, fixed bayonets and tear gas and horseback and so forth. Um, that really sort of sealed the the, the, the fate of, of Hoover's in, uh, chance at re-election. People were really furious at that move. And I think there was a lot of resentment against Hoover much more than Roosevelt. And so Roosevelt was regarded as, you know, there was anticipation and hope that he would turn things around, um, which is one of the reasons why the attempted assassination was greeted with such uh, shock and, and really anxiety. That's what made the attempted assassination on FDR so troubling. The three presidents who had been assassinated before FDR, Lincoln, Garfield, and McKinley, they had already served some years as president, had already made an impact on the country and made enemies and, and attracted detractors. FDR, when a gunman took a shot at him, had not even been inaugurated president yet. He wasn't even the president. So the inauguration during that time was actually in March, which meant that in February, when a gunman took a shot at FDR, he wasn't even president yet. 
When FDR won his second election in 1936, a few years later, when he was sworn in in 1937, he was sworn in in January, the first president in American history to be sworn in in January. Dr. Wollner says that because of the immediacy of the crisis that Hoover had created, an expedited changeover of power became of great interest to the American public. So when FDR was inaugurated yet again in 1936, the process was pushed up and the standard has remained ever since. So that period between election and inauguration was at its longest for the last time, and it was in that period that FDR was nearly killed. So the outline of the events are as follows. Franklin Delano Roosevelt was in Miami on February 15, 1933. He was the president-elect, and he was down in Miami with a guest, Anton Cermak, the mayor of Chicago. He was in Miami on vacation and was spending time with fellow Democrat Franklin Roosevelt, as well as James Farley, the head of the Democratic National Committee at that time. FDR was doing a speech on the night of the 15th in Bayfront Park in Miami. FDR was propped on a car due to his inability to stand and delivered the speech from the top of the seat. During the speech, a gunman named Giuseppe Zangara opened fire on the crowd and hit five bystanders as well as Mayor Cermak. His target was FDR. The president-elect was not hit, but the shot to Cermak would prove fatal in time, the only casualty perpetuated by Zangara. Zangara was arrested quickly and was executed in the Florida State Prison just over a month later on March 20th, 1933. Let's dig in a little bit. Why was FDR in Miami in the first place? Dr. Wollner has an answer. Well, actually, uh, you know, Roosevelt was a great lover of the sea, and his way of, of relaxing uh, often was to go to sea, and he had taken this kind of cruise uh, to the Bahamas um, as a way of relaxing after the election victory um, in the uh, yacht of John uh, J uh, John Jacob Astor, actually. Oh, wow. And he had, they had returned to Miami, um, so he was in Miami and uh, decided to do a kind of a little tour uh, of the city. And uh, on the evening of March, or excuse me, on the evening of February 15th, um, they went to uh, Bayfront Park. And believe it or not, 20,000 people showed up, um, <laughs> which, again, I think tells you something about the anticipation of the Roosevelt presidency. And, um, you know, that's when the assassination occurred. It's, it's kind of a miracle that he wasn't killed. Um, this this uh, would-be assassin, whose name is uh, Joseph Giuseppe Zangara, um, jumped up on a park bench about 30 feet away from the president and took out his revolver. He'd bought this revolver at a pawn shop for $8. Um, this guy was an un unemployed bricklayer. Um, and uh, he, he jumped out upon a bench that actually was already, in a sense, occupied by a woman named uh, Mrs. Lillian Cross. She was on the bench as well, standing up because she wanted to get a good look at the president. He'd already given his speech. It was a short speech. Um, and, you know, um, he's, he gave it from his car. You know, remember, he, he's doing everything from a sitting position. Of he course. had propped himself up on the back seat of the car. So he was sitting on top of the seat. But once the speech was done, he lowered himself down into the regular uh, position of the car. And Anton Cermak, who was the mayor of Chicago and was in Miami uh, on vacation and partly also to see uh, James Farley, who was the Democratic national chairman, to talk some politics. Um, you know, the president was there. So, of course, he wanted to say hello and greet the president. And um, was uh, on site and standing next to the president's car when Zangara fired off his revolver. 
thank goodness Mrs. Cross, thinking quickly, um, realized what he was trying to do and grabbed his arm um, and shoved his arm up, uh, which meant that the shots that were fired were, you know, uh, in a sense deflected higher than they might have been and, and, and away from the president. I don't think she... She knew he was pointing right at the president. I don't think she you know, had time to figure out where to push his arm, but she sure. did jog his arm and he missed. Um, and it's quite dramatic. It's much more so than you, you know, uh, Cermak was hit in the chest. Um, other people were shot in the head. Um, one, of the, one of the other uh, shooting victims was, was also in critical condition. So it was, it was a very dramatic scene. It's one of the most interesting parts of the song from the musical Assassins. It is called How I Saved Roosevelt, after all. And a big part of it is all the people who say that they had an impact on saving his life. And indeed, one did. Mrs. Lillian Cross. One account says that her husband, Mr. W.F. Cross, was a doctor, a physician in Miami. But Lillian was just there to see the president that night, and in one swift action, she very well may have saved his life. In an interview later, she said, quote, my mind grasped the situation in a flash, end quote. She says that she reached up and twisted Zangara's arm as the pistol fired. Others in the area came to her aid. She says, quote, I grabbed his arm and pushed it with all my strength into the air and called for help. A man named Tom Armour also grabbed his arm, and the next thing I knew, some other men had reached him and were choking him, end quote. Apparently, she had gunpowder on her cheek that night. That's how close she was to the gunshots. Zangara was quickly taken away, and the shot did not hit FDR. The president-elect dropped into the car, unhurt. One action, in a critical moment, and an essential figure in world history dips out of gunfire safe, thanks to Mrs. Lillian Cross. But another part of that song has always caught my attention. It's when Zangara explains his motives. You see, Giuseppe Zangara was, as Dr. Wolner mentioned, an unemployed bricklayer. He was an immigrant from Italy, born in Calabria in 1900. Giuseppe served in World War I and eventually immigrated to America in 1923, living in New Jersey. He became a naturalized citizen in 1929 and, as I mentioned, worked in bricklaying. But he had a unique condition, an anomalous stomach pain that caused him severe discomfort. Doctors told him it was a chronic condition with no treatment and he would suffer this pain for the rest of his life. He did go through an appendectomy to no avail. After his death, an autopsy discovered severe issues with his gallbladder, likely the cause of his stomach pain that he suffered from childhood until the day he was executed in 1933. But that's not a reason. In the musical Assassins, he, he expresses a few reasons why he would come down and kill FDR. He certainly speaks about the pain in the stomach, but he also says something chilling that I've always wondered about. He states, essentially, that it didn't matter to him at all who died. He wanted someone to suffer for the way the world was going, the way the country was. Roosevelt, Hoover, it didn't make any difference. That's what he says. Is that true to actually how Zangara felt? There was um, quite a bit of interviewing of, of uh, Zangara afterwards, including Raymond Moley, who was a presidential advisor. So, you know, was traveling with the president. And he actually uh, went to the hospital with FDR, and, uh, and Saramac, and he he actually uh, spoke to um, Zengara that night, and so did the police. Um, but but Moli actually had the first opportunity to speak to him to ask him what he was motivated by, and he he simply said that he didn't hate President Roosevelt. He hated all political leaders. He was a very disgruntled man, very bitter about his life, I think. 
Um, at one point, he'd said that he he planned to king, king, kill King Emmanuel back in Italy. He was an Italian immigrant who came to the United States in 1923. He was a naturalized citizen by this point. Um, and, you know, they did find a news clipping of the assassination of President McKinley in 1901 by an anarchist. Um, and I think there was a lot of speculation that he might have been a, an anarchist. You know, anarchism was around uh, in the 19th century, late 19th and early 20th century kind of ideology. But, you know, Moley, and I think it's true, he, he didn't he didn't detect any political ideas or motivation on this guy's part. He just seemed like a man who was bitter at the world. And he said he would have Hoover um, uh, and had thought about shooting Hoover, but then he read about Roosevelt coming to Miami, and so he decided to shoot Roosevelt. History.com's account of the event includes an important detail as well. They say that when Zengara began shooting, he shouted, quote, too many people are starving, end quote. In this same article, they say that the crowd that stopped Zengara was more intense than previously mentioned. Quote, several men tackled the assailant and might have beaten him to death if Roosevelt had not intervened, telling the crowd to leave justice to the authorities." End quote. As for Zangara's explanation for his motives, well, he was in Miami already. He was living there seemingly and was doing quote-unquote odd jobs, just sort of surviving, ma making his way through whatever he could as a bricklayer down there in Miami. He was already there. He, he didn't follow FDR. It wasn't his intent to go down there and attack Roosevelt. He was in Miami already when he purchased the revolver that he would then use in the attack. And, and as I said, his motives, he actually was able to speak on it. He said a few things that are listed in this article. He says, quote, I don't hate Mr. Roosevelt personally. I hate all officials and anyone who is rich, end quote. He also said, quote, my stomach hurt. I want to make even with the capitalists by kill the president, end quote. Whatever his reasons, he started firing and chaos ensued. Amazing. I mean, it was it's an amazing scene because um, the Secret Service, of course, immediately, you know, stepped gas and wanted to get out of there. Uh, Roosevelt immediately told him to he, he said they had to attend to Sarmac. Um, he insisted that the mayor be brought, you know, he, he was placed in Roosevelt's car. Roosevelt spoke to him and, and tried to comfort him. He insisted on taking, being with him to take him to the hospital. Uh, he monitored his pulse in the car as they dashed off to the hospital. They were followed along by the, the second car, which included uh, Moley's car. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, uh, Roosevelt, uh, stayed in the hospital till after 11 p.m. He he continued to talk to Cermak. He took a call from his wife. He, uh, Eleanor Roosevelt had learned about it when she returned to New York after a speaking engagement uh, uh, further upstate, um, and uh, you know told her he was fine, not to worry. And apparently he went back to his yacht that night and uh, had a drink and was engaged in casual conversation and didn't seem at all perturbed by wow. what had just happened to him. Um, and, you know, I think in, in terms of uh, the, the actions vis-a-vis Zangara, that, that's also interesting. Uh, there was no federal crime for shooting a, a an official of the United States government. So the attorney general uh, ruled and indicated that the state of Florida would have to do the prosecution. Uh, and they did it uh, pretty, you know, they, they did it relatively quickly. He was he was indicted um, on February 20th. Wow. Um, uh, arraigned on February 20th, I should say. It's only five days after. Uh, he pleaded guilty 
immediately to all four counts. He was charged with attempted murder, four, four counts of attempted murder. Wow. He, um, he uh, received 80 year, an 80-year sentence, um, you know, 20 years for each count. I'm sorry to interrupt Dr. Wolner here, but there's going to be a brief description now of how the gunshot led to Cermak's death. It's not graphic, it's just intense and brief. Here's Dr. Wolner. Then uh, a couple of weeks later, Cermak died. There was hope that he would survive, but this bullet was lodged uh, deep in his body next to his spine, and they, you know, the surgeons decided they couldn't operate. Um, and he eventually, you know, fell into a coma and died on the 6th of March, so just a couple of days after the inauguration. Um, and, uh, you know, then they charged Zengur with murder. Um, and he was uh, brought before the court on March 9th, and he pleaded guilty. He even asked for the electric chair. He wow. is a very bitter man, as I said. Uh, he kind of dared the judge to give him the electric chair. The judge indicated, and it was, you know, uh, that it was either going to be life in prison or the death penalty. Um, and the ruling didn't come until the next day. The 10th of March, he was sentenced to death, and he was actually executed uh, 10 days later on March 20th. I mean, that's less than two months after the assassination. That's just remarkably fast. Yeah, it was remarkable. In the time after the assassination attempt, his respect in the country seemed to grow, and people rallied around their new president. Dr. Wolner says that it didn't seem to have any lasting impacts on the president's demeanor or his willingness to speak in public. You know, I, I don't think it, it, it impacted uh, his uh, his his person in any uh, real way. Um, I think, you know, Roosevelt was a man who had a kind of simple faith, and um, I think he, he felt whatever was going to happen was going to happen, and, and he went on with his life. FDR did indeed go on with his life. He served for 12 years until he died in office in 1945. He led the United States through the Great Depression and World War II. With a situation, a pivot point like this, one cannot help but stop and wonder what the world would look like today if Mrs. Cross had not been sitting there that night, if Zengara's shot rang true. What if FDR had died that night in Miami? Uh, it's quietly a, a pretty significant turning point in, in world history then, that, that, that the woman on the bench pushed his arm up. I absolutely agree. And then you think about the Second World War. Who knows, uh, Who knows what yeah. would have been? Yeah, yeah, and when it was on the brink, I mean, the summer of 1940, uh, really, people should think, think about after the fall of France uh, and Roosevelt's determination to help the British, as we're, as we're now helping Ukraine, uh, what would have happened if the United States had not passed Lend-Lease and had not decided to have Great Britain in their hour of need? Uh, you know, we can only wonder what the world would look like today. History is often about what did happen the pivoting, essential turning points of history that prove how actions, even the smallest action, can ripple outward for generations, decades, centuries beyond. But in the case of February 15, 1933, in Bayfront Park, Miami, the opposite must be considered. On that night, we must consider what did not happen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you were here, and I'm so glad I finally got a chance to tell you a story that is as fascinating to me as this one. Thank you for listening. Thank you for hearing this story. I'm glad we finally got to talk about it. 
If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, it will help the show grow. And if you just leave a review, you can tell me what you like about the show. I read every review. I'd love to know what people think about the show. And you can also reach me on Instagram and Facebook at WFMPod or send me an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. I would love to hear from you. Love to hear what you like about the show. Just just reach out. Truly. (laughs) I read everything. I promise. I would love to hear what you enjoy about this show. So thank you for that. I would like to thank Dr. David Woolner of the Roosevelt Institute who took his afternoon to speak with me about this story and about FDR. And I would be remiss to not tell you that he has an amazing book that you have to check out. Here is Dr. Woolner talking about this book. I am the author of a book called The Last Hundred Days FDR at War and at Peace. It it looks at the final three months of Roosevelt's life. Uh, Roosevelt's very famous for his first hundred days. Uh, He passed with Congress's help, by the way, more pieces of legislation in the first hundred days than any other president in, in history. Um, but his last hundred days, you know, it's, it's a period in his life when he's exhausted. He's desperately trying to see the war through to the end of, uh, uh, to its conclusion. He really was very ambivalent about running for president again in 1944. I think he would have really liked to just retire to his home in, in, on the Hudson River in Hyde Park, but he decided it was his responsibility to run. And it's a very interesting period because I think it's a period in which Roosevelt really focusing on the things that he thought mattered most. Um, you know, he, he's tired, he's exhausted, he's carrying on. And in some ways, it's a very telling uh, period in, in, in history. And so I wrote this book to chronicle what Roosevelt tried to do in the last hundred days of his life. I've included a link in the episode description so you can pick up a copy yourself and learn even more about FDR and his amazing impact on American history. Go check out that book and thank you again to Dr. Woolner. The song used in this episode is from Assassins by Stephen Sondheim, the original Broadway cast recording. I've included a link to where you can listen to the entire musical. I cannot recommend it enough. It is one of my favorite musicals of all time and it is even more fascinating than just that one song. All of the instrumental music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, that is it for me this week. Thank you so much for listening. We will be back next week talking about baseball. You you know I got to talk about baseball whenever I can, but how can I not? Spring training is just around the corner, and I feel now is the best time to tell you about one of the most fascinating, important figures in baseball history, Mr. Babe Ruth, the Bambino himself, and the time that he spent in Florida. Everybody came to Florida, right? Including Babe Ruth. We'll be talking about that next week. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and go Gator and muddy the water. Have a good week. See you next Monday, and have a very happy Valentine's Day. See you later.